ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. If you have uh, small children with you uh, in the car or at home or somewhere else, this probably isn't the episode you want to have playing because we're going to be talking about some issues that are pretty adult today. So if you have small kids around, maybe skip this episode and move on to something else. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. Sex robots are not really a problem in most evangelical churches today, so I don't get asked about sex robots very often, and that's precisely the reason we need to talk about the issue today. Uh, The reason I want to talk about sex robots today is for a couple of reasons. One of them is because in May of 2017, I gave an ethics uh, exam to the students from various uh, seminaries and and universities who take their Christian ethics uh, class here at the ERLC. And normally what I do in my ethics uh, exam is to try to put a case study, a hypothetical case study in front of the students and ask them to work it out for me. And the reason I do that is not so much because I want them to have the right answer and, and to give to me the right answer. As much as it is, I want to see how they're developing their answer. How are they using Scripture? How are they uh, thinking through the implications of uh, their decisions? How are they drawing in wisdom? How are they uh, applying this uh, to to people's lives? And so I'll I'll come up with some uh, scenario every year. This was this year's question, last year's question. Imagine that you're further along in your ministry, 30 years into the future. Irving, the name's back in vogue, becoming trendy again somewhere in the 2030s, is a leader in your church. He's been drafted into military service, which means he will spend three years doing galactic maneuvers far away from the Earth's atmosphere. This young man will be leaving behind his young wife, Mildred, also a popular name by this time. In this space-jumping military, uh, sexual immorality, including extramarital affairs, is rampant. Very few marriages or partnerships survive the strain of being apart, especially in a 2047 culture where a previous era standards of monogamy are seen the way our 2017 culture views uh, previous era's views on birth control. Irving, though, is part of the prophetic minority. Holding to a view of marital fidelity and sexual morality, most of his peers, even those professing to be Christians, would see as retrograde and repressive. Irving plans to remain faithful to his wife, to his marriage vows, and to the teachings of Scripture. Irving does not rule out, at some point in the three-year assignment, utilizing, rarely and sparingly, a sex robot 
now common and inexpensive. These robots are always at hand for use by military personnel in space. Now, when you think robot, do not think of some metallic drone or even some animated mannequin. The robot's synthetic skin and hair and even look out of its artificial eyes are virtually indistinguishable from a human being. Moreover, the robot is equipped with artificial intelligence, allowing it to respond naturally to commands and to seem even relationally real. The robot is called Siri in a nostalgic nod to the archaic technology of the early century. Irving and the majority of your church see no ethical problem here. After all, Irving says the Bible warns of the temptation that can come with sexual deprivation, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 1 through 9. The use of this robot does not affect his Christian witness in the eyes of his peers, since the utilization of a sex robot is seen to them as a sign of his refusal to engage in free sex with, with persons. His wife is enthusiastically in support, seeing this as a help to their marriage. Irving's conscience is clear, and he sees this as a Romans 14 issue where consciences within the church shouldn't bind one another on a matter not explicitly addressed in Scripture. Irving believes the in-case-of-emergency sex robot is itself a providence of God, a technological means of escape from potential temptation, since 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that there's no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man, uh, but that God has always provided the means of escape from that. And he, he knows his own frailties and his vulnerabilities. Now, the reason I set all of this up this way uh, in this final exam was to get to the, the series of questions. And the first question, first part of the question is this, is Irving in sin? Make your scriptural case for why or why not. If he is in sin, in your view, would you discipline him in terms of the, the agency of the church all the way to excommunication if he doesn't relent? This is a Matthew 18 uh, situation for you. If your answer is that Irving is not in sin, then answer me as to why you would now say that it is wrong for a married couple to use pornography together by common consent to, in their view, revitalize a flagging intimacy. Would you bless the idea of a husband separated from his wife for a long period of time using porn with his wife's permission? What makes a difference for you if there is one? If you would not discipline Irving for being open to the use of this robot, would you allow a consideration of him to be an elder or a pastor after using this sex robot? Now, Next part of the question is this, if you would not say that this is a sin for Irving or, or not a sin within the bounds of the scrutiny of the church, take the question one step further. Would you, in similar circumstances, feel free to have sex with Siri? Why or why not? Okay, next part. If your answer is that Irving is in sin, but that you would not seek discipline, or would seek discipline but short of excommunication. So you'd, you'd go to him and, and confront him and maybe uh, bring somebody uh, else with you, but you wouldn't take it all the way through to where Jesus takes it with bringing this before the church and, and making it an issue of, of fellowship. Then explain to me how you would make the case to Irving and to the church that you're going to decline discipline, and how do you make those decisions about what things are sins against God but not uh, worthy of taking to that level. Okay, 
Next part of the question. If your answer is that yes, Irving is in sin and that yes, you would seek to follow the full Matthew 18 process up to, if necessary, excommunication, then explain to me first how you would make the case to Irving and to the church because they think you're crazy. They, they, they don't understand your objections here. Then I say, would it make a difference for you in making your moral decisions here if the robot were an exact simulation of Irving's wife, Mildred, especially modeled and designed to be indistinguishable, not only in looks, but also in movement and body language from her? Would it make further difference if the robot were controlled technologically by Mildred so that she is operating the robot during each encounter as essentially an extension by long distance of herself? What if, by the use of immersive technology hardwired into their neural pathways, the robot is able to allow both Irving and Mildred to respond to each other in this way with all five senses as though they were present with each other? Now, if all this is still, in your view, sinful and disciplinable, then would you discipline now a church member right now in your uh, church who's in the military overseas who exchanges sexually explicit text messages or telephone calls with his wife or with her husband? Would you discipline the same soldier for masturbation while thinking of and missing the spouse in the same circumstance And if not, what makes the difference for you? Now, here's the reason why I asked this question. Here's the reason why I broke it down uh, the way that I did. Because most of the students who are preparing for leadership in the church, whether as pastors or um, missionaries or uh, women's ministry leaders or counselors or, or whatever within the church, most of them have not spent a lot of time thinking through issues of, of sex robots. That, that, that's not something that's currently being debated very much on Facebook. That's the reason I asked the question. It's the same reason why, oh, 10 or 12 years ago, the case study that I gave was of a, a transgender a person who was born biologically male but who has uh, surgically and hormonally transitioned to identifying as female, who comes to faith in Christ and wants to know, what do I do now? I I asked that question then precisely because I knew that most people hadn't sort of been acculturated into knowing what the right Sunday school answers would be. Uh, in the way that they would with with a lot of other uh, moral situations. I wanted them to be confronted with something they hadn't experienced yet. Now, since then, uh, you know, really anybody who's who's doing ministry in uh, American life or or uh, European life or many other places in the world is confronting uh, the transgender issue all the time. Uh, not as much at uh, ten or twelve years ago. Most people aren't dealing with questions of sex robots. They're they're dealing with other questions of technology. But the problem is we can become so immersed in the technological world around us that we, we, we don't even recognize the things we've already accommodated to. We don't recognize the, the sorts of questions that we're not asking because nobody else is asking those questions. So coming up with something that seems initially strange uh, can help us to deal with with root issues in a way that we might just filter out ordinarily. Also because 
I firmly believe this is going to be a question some way or the other that every single church and Christian will be grappling with and dealing with in the quite near future. Now, since uh, the time that I gave this exam, just in the past uh, few weeks, actually, uh, Ross Douthat, columnist at the New York Times, uh, wrote a piece on uh, on sex robots, at least a few steps away from, from sex robots, uh, on the question of uh, redistribution of sex. And what Ross did was to take the, the conversation that's going on right now about incels, those who are involuntarily celibate. Um, and he looks at an economist who says there's so much violence that's taking place uh, from from incels, from those who are, are raging, usually young men, who are raging at the fact that they don't have the opportunity for uh, sexual relations with women. And this drives them to a sense of a rage against women or rage against society, and there's some, some violence that's that's taken place. And Ross makes the point, well, the sexual revolution is kind of like the industrial revolution in that you end up with winners and losers. And so just just on the basis of the terms of the sexual revolution itself, you're going to end up with some people who are kind of um, kind of in terms of income inequality, the one percent, and then you have people who have not, uh, been able to, to to go along with this revolution, and now they're uh, looking around and seeing what it is that they're missing, and they become very angry about that. And so, could it be that sex robot technology is the way to uh, see to it that people are sexually fulfilled when they can't uh, find mates? through the, the sexual marketplace in a way that might reduce that sort of, uh, that sort of rage and hostility. So it's sort of equivalent what, he, what he's, what he's the, pro- the proposal he's putting forward here. Ross is not arguing for that, but he's putting the, the proposal out and saying, is, is this sort of similar to the New Deal? They came in and said the uh, unregulated laissez-faire economy is, is so – uh, is leaving so many people behind that in order to preserve the capitalist system, you've got to inject some less than than capitalist means in order to see to it that the system is is fairer and, and more just and so that you don't have a complete revolt against it. Would sex robots be the equivalent of that uh, when it comes to marriage and sexuality and, and, and romance? So he's simply putting that question out, not really dealing so much with the technology of sex robots as much as with the idea of, uh, uh, of what it means to re- have redistribution of sex. And, and beyond that, whether or not there is a right to sexual fulfillment. And I think that at the heart of many of the questions that we're going to be facing with robotic technology, artificial intelligence technology, really comes down to that basic question of what we view sexuality as being about. What does it mean that we are sexual creatures? And so, much of the confusion that we have going on right now as it relates to pornography, uh, as it relates to a, a whole variety of issues, will, in the fullness of time, show up in all kinds of technological permutations, some of which we can anticipate right now, some of which we probably can't. 
And I don't think we're ready for those things. And the reason that we're not ready for those things is because I don't think we have, even often those within the church, we don't have a biblical understanding of what the purpose of sex is. And and by sex, I'm not referring here to male and female as distinct categories, although that's true too, but to the to the the meaning of sexual intercourse. Uh, so there is often an understanding in contemporary Western life that sex is a a right to use the the language that doubt that uses is a right precisely because we think of sex as an appetite that is uh, similar to the appetite for food or or, or other appetites that we may have, something that must be fulfilled and, and must be fulfilled in terms of, uh, of release in, in whatever way that that uh, comes about. Now, as with every other sort of error, there's a grain of truth to that. The, the desire for sexual intimacy is a powerfully strong uh, desire, and it can easily be be metaphorically spoken of in terms of hunger or thirst for someone or for an experience. That part is true. So our hardwiring toward sexual intimacy from a Darwinist view is because uh, the people who are um, are going to survive are going to be the people who reproduce. And so the people who are more inclined to reproduce are going to be the ones who uh, who have babies and are going to carry that genetic predisposition uh, with them. So that drive toward uh, reproduction, toward sexual expression is is hardwired into us. But while we would disagree with the Darwinist rendering of reality as as Christians, we wouldn't disagree with the fact that uh, sexuality is so powerful and does seem so irrational uh, sometimes. So it's it's not that someone gets up and says, you know, I I think that uh, I would uh, I would like to uh, m- map out on my calendar. Uh, a time of sexual expression in order to uh, reproduce or in order to to build strong marital bonds. Uh, yeah, you may do that if you're, uh, for instance, uh, trying to uh, get pregnant. And uh, okay, today is you know, we're we're doing this today because we're marking it on the calendar because we want to be pregnant. Or if you're in a situation where maybe your marriage is is growing distant and and there's been a, a loss of intimacy, and so you're saying we've got to make sure that we uh, have sex with one another. Maybe you mark it on a calendar and make that sort of rational decision-making there. But generally speaking, sexual desire doesn't emerge that way. Now, the problem is that if we don't understand what sexual desire is for, then we end up with this idea of it as an abstract appetite that needs to be filled personally and individually. So that if we're deprived of that, then we're deprived of something that is fundamental. So if we don't see that that God in Genesis 2, that Jesus points to and, and reaffirms when he's talking about issues of divorce, that God has designed marital couples to join to one another in a covenant relationship in which they are one flesh, 
They're, they're, they're one organic union. And that the sexual relationship is designed to create that sort of union that is, is fruitful. There, there's often the uh, generation of new life that happens from this union. It also is a, a union that keeps uh, couples together and engaged with one another. Uh, which is what I think uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 7, I referenced in that test question earlier, about uh, don't don't deprive uh, yourselves of one another except for a short period of time uh, for prayer and fasting so that Satan may not uh, tempt you due to your lack of of self-control. Now, that's not coming out of nowhere. Paul has has talked about to the, the church at Corinth uh, previously in that very chapter about uh, the, the lack of, of self-control. It is better to marry than to burn with passion, he says. So there, there is a sense in which the, the marital union is itself a concession to uh, the inability to restrain sexual passion in some cases. It's better not to marry to be free uh, for the work of ministry. But he concedes that many people, most people, uh, are, not, uh, are not designed to be able to navigate sexual passion that way. Problem is, once you remove that relational aspect where you have a, a sexual union that's part of a marriage covenant, and the marriage covenant is itself a picture of the union of Christ and his church. Once you, once you undo all of that and you simply end up with the sexual union as being the equivalent of a yawn, something that's just a biological reflex and is something that you, you have to do uh, in order to be a, a genuine person or be a, a real person, then there is a sense of um, of rage that takes place uh, when when one is deprived of something that one thinks uh, one deserves. There also is this sense of a powerlessness to be able to control this, something that the scripture completely repudiates. There is no temptation, as we referenced earlier, that has overtaken you that is not common to man uh, it doesn't mean that your vulnerabilities are the same as everybody else's vulnerabilities. It means that you're not having a temptation that is unique to you alone, which is what it can sometimes feel like. Well, I'm the only one that really knows what I'm going through. No, this is, this is common to humanity. And in every situation, God has provided you the means of escape. God has provided the means of escape not only for those who are married or those who are in a uh, a sexual uh, relationship, God has provided the means of escape for everyone who is in a place of temptation. So uh, what does that look like? Well, for those who are married, it, it looks like attention to the marital union and the exclusivity and fidelity to those marriage vows and to that marital union. For those who are not married, it means faithfulness and obedience to Christ which means not expressing sexual union. Well, why? Because if I'm expressing sexual uh, union or sexual release in a way that is not geared toward the one flesh union, toward the picture of Christ in the church, I'm doing something 
completely different than what it is that sexuality was designed to express. Now, the problem is when you come to the sort of sexual ecology we have around us right now, that really does see sort of implicitly that the meaning of sex is about orgasm. And the partner is a means to the orgasm, then you're you're going to be able to completely redefine uh, whether or not there is a partner at all. That's just not a biblical view of sex. the The orgasm is designed by God, important, but the orgasm is a means to the uh, spouse, not the spouse. The means to the orgasm. And so if you get that if you get that turned around then one would would inevitably say well in order for me to be faithful then that means that I'm going to uh I'm going to need to have some alternative to real incarnational embodied relational marital union and technology can try to come up with a thousand different counterfeits of that in a way that is not going to satisfy an appetite. It's going to leave you uh, the way that porn leaves people now uh, and the way that endless numbers of technologies have tried to do over the years, leave you with a sense of even more loneliness than what you experienced before. So the answer uh, for the uh, the person who is um, uh, gone away from a spouse for an extended period of time is not to come up with some dark parody of uh, of sexual union, whether that's with a living person or whether that's with the expression of what Jesus defines as lust uh, with an object, you know, completely objectifying. Uh, the the act of, of sexual intercourse. The answer is fidelity. And what what people have found out who have been committed to a time of uh, celibacy, whether that is lifelong or whether that's for a a particular period of time, is that it actually, uh, when done right, works the opposite of what we think it will. So that the one who is committed to following Christ, and who is faithfully celibate, finds that it's not that the deprivation causes that person to to go insane with more and more and more desire. It's that those desires often become more manageable uh, as time goes on. And so uh, the the idea of saying, well, I'm going to have technologies to divert my sexual appetite so that I won't sin against God and against my spouse is sort of the equivalent of saying, well, Jesus uh, warns us against ungodly anger, uh, and you shall not say to your brother, you fool. Uh, Whoever hates his brother in his heart has committed murder. Someone who says, well, since that's true, what I'm going to do is to create a uh, a, a an image of uh, the person in my life that I hate that I can go home and uh, simulate uh, striking out out at and and beating up. Well, that's that's not uh, a a legitimate diversion of anger. All that does is to redirect the anger into an artificial sort of place. What should I do instead? I should crucify the flesh and its desires 
and I should bring before God to say, God, I'm being tempted right now to award an ungodly anger toward this person, toward maybe even a hatred toward this person. Um, I'm, I'm wanting to flee that. Can I bring this to you? And would you forgive me of this, but would you also provide me with a means of escape from this temptation? Same thing's true here. Uh, I'm being tempted toward selfishly directing sexuality outside of the covenant. And so, God, I don't have a means to cleave uh, to my spouse at this point. I'm in outer space or whatever the scenario is. God, give to me the ability to be able to faithfully live through that in the way that uh, fasting, for instance, works, rather than to find myself in a situation where in order to help myself fast, I become a bulimic. That doesn't solve the problem. So sex robots, not a big problem right now in evangelical churches. That's why we need to think about it. This is Russell Moore. You've been listening to Signposts. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.